subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, uh, it was like a reenactment of the January sales yesterday up and down the country as people crowded around outside shops as they prepared to open to the public for the first time uh, since March. Today, we'll take stock of exactly what happened, how much money was spent, how many people didn't bother with social distancing in the queues because it didn't look like they were to me, uh, and what happens now, of course, as the government faces pressure to lift the quarantine on holiday makers and coming into the country from elsewhere around the world. The two-metre rule is getting looked at and restrictions in schools as well. The people of this country appear to be ready to go back to work. Well, most of them do anyway. And as we've said before, if you're well enough and fit enough and safe enough to go crowding around buying shopping, then surely you can go back and make a living as well. This morning we'll be finding out just what exactly is going on in our education system and we'll need your help. Can you honestly say that you have been properly homeschooling your own children? Have you just been letting them do whatever they want? Uh, Have you been letting them get on the PlayStation and never get off it until you go to bed? And have their schools been stepping up to the plate in order to ensure that they are giving out enough homework? Do let us know because you are, of course, our eyes and ears. I will be bringing you my own version of events for what's been happening at my children's school. But also, how about this for a piece of information? Information. I've been told uh, with relative authority that quite a lot of teachers out there do not want to return to work in the state system because they are doing private tutorials for people uh, who are off school at the moment uh, and they are making a pretty penny on the side. Now that could well be the case. If it is not the case, I'd be very happy for you to tell me it's not the case, but it sounds like it rings true to me. 0344 499 1000. Meanwhile, we also need to know if you are out and about shopping, what are you seeing, what are you hearing and what are you actually buying? The streets this morning in London are absolutely rampant. I had to take all manner of detours in order to get here today because the traffic was so awful. Have you gone back to work? What's it like? 0344 499 1000. Also, coming up later on, we'll be talking Brexit. Remember that? Uh, yes, apparently there's going to be a deal before the end of the summer, or possibly not. Harry and Meghan are going to be uh, featuring as well, plus the economy. Stupid, as Bill Clinton used to say. Plus, on homeschooling today, I'm going to learn how to do sign language. You won't want to miss that, will you? 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
Now, don't forget, you can, of course, watch us live as well as listening to us live at the moment. We are all over the place. We are on your Alexa. Uh, we are on uh, an app, if you wish. We're online, if you wish. We're on DAB. We will soon be on DAB+. Plus. Uh, and, of course, you can change that very shortly. We are on YouTube live streaming right now. So get on it. Watch us. Join uh, the merry throng uh, of people who have decided that this is the home of common sense and it's the only radio station worth listening to. Let us talk straight away, though, to Calvin Robinson, State Secretary School teacher, uh, a man we've spoken to a few times in the past because we're told by a piece in the front page of the Times today that millions and millions of pupils have literally been doing no work whatsoever uh, while they've been off school, which doesn't surprise me, to be honest. Very good morning. Welcome back, Calvin. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me again. Thanks very much indeed. Now, obviously, this is a very broad brush statement which is being made. And I know that you've told us in the past that that you've been involved uh, very heavily with with some of your uh, pupils while they've been off school and people have been homeschooling and all the rest of it. I must say that my own children's school sort of last week changed their uh, position, which had been up until last week. Here's some homework if you wish to do some. Now they're basically setting homework and saying this needs to be in by next Monday. So they've, they've made it a slightly harder line, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think the government were quite good in this and that they gave schools a lot of autonomy to handle this situation how they saw fit. And we've seen some schools doing some fantastic things with online learning. And these reports in the paper today have shown that those schools have done really well and had lots of engagement. On the other hand, schools that have just been giving out homework and expecting pupils to get on with it have had less luck. And I don't think that's all down to the schools, to be fair. I think there's been a lack of parental engagement. You know, these reports showed that only 50% of parents have engaged with the learning of their children. And that's that's a really shocking number. Only half of parents are bothering to, you know, care about their child's education yeah. at the moment. What yeah, I, th- I think that's interesting because, yeah, of, of course, I mean, there are some parents, as you will know, Calvin, who kind of think of school as a place to put their kids for, you know, three quarters of the year uh, and just yeah. forget about them. They don't take much interest in what they do there. They don't really take much interest in what the teachers are saying to them. They don't really get involved with anything at the school. And so now, when they've uh, been charged with basically teaching their own kids, either one, they don't know how to, or two, they just don't want to. Yeah, I think we're seeing a widening in the class divide here as well. Because we've got people like yourself who are saying, where's the work for my kid? I want Mm. my kid to be doing more work. Mm. And then you've got other people who maybe they didn't have a good time at school themselves and they're kind of not seeing the benefits of education for their own child. But it's so unfortunate because this is the way that we, you know, social justice is given through education it's, it's the, our primary tool and unless we use it we've got this perpetual cycle of poverty and dependence on the state and that's the problem isn't it because what we don't want is to create that dependence uh, but unfortunately because of the way that the state operates if you are kind of slightly dependent on the state the chances are you will become more dependent on the state as time goes on yeah absolutely i think we're seeing the same thing with these uh, vouchers as well it's vital that uh, children are fed and children uh, receive free school meals in school but why are we extending extending that now to outside Mm. of school and to the summer holidays we are really building a welfare state here well exactly right i mean i'm like you i'm perfectly happy for people to get free school meals while they're at school and it's a good opportunity for uh, for those children to get a reasonable amount of nutrition uh, if that's not what they're getting at home but but you're absolutely right if you start to just give everybody stuff for free after a while, they don't want to earn anything. They don't actually get taught responsibility. They don't get taught that, you know, you have a choice in life. Uh, one, either to have children or not to have children. And two, uh, to smoke or not to smoke or to drink or not to drink or to take drugs or not to take drugs and to eat and provide for your family. 
Yeah, and I think we, you know, we've got to raise aspirations for all children, uh, particularly those in deprived areas, and we don't do that by lowering standards. So we really need to further engage with parents. We need to really get parents on board in supporting the child's education because it's not all up to us. We, you know, we do this because we care, but we can't do it by ourselves. Yeah, it's a partnership between right. school and home. Right, and this this has proven that that's not quite working yet. Yes, and what's the positioning uh, of the kind of the government's Department of Education here? Because at the moment the government appears to be drifting, and I'm a great supporter and have been a great supporter with Boris Johnson's Prime Minister, you know, but there's a certain sense at the moment that nothing in government is working particularly well and there's not a great deal of leadership coming out of any department. Yeah, I'm quite confused about it myself because last time we talked, it looked like schools were being pushed to go back, um, secondary schools for year 10 and year 12, you know, GCSE enabled years, um, and it's become a bit fluffy. I know the unions fought back and there was a lot of backlash but I don't know where we actually stand now. Are we pushing to get children back? Are we saying wait until September? Because yeah. they're, they're still missing out on their learning. Well, exactly. And I mean, aside from the fact that, uh, you know, the GCSE students are really, really suffering because I've got one of those at home. He has literally no work that he can be doing because at the moment, you know, he would have at this point, I think last Friday would have been his last day of school. Uh, generally right. speaking, he would have been now on summer holiday. Uh, he would have been waiting for his results. They still aren't going to give him his results until August the 20th, despite the fact that it's going to be a false and kind of conjured together result anyway. So I don't know why they can't do that earlier, because if it's going to be bad news and he's not going to get the grades that he needs, um, he's not going to find out until August the 20th. Now, if you found out on on you know june the 20th he could do something about it and he could actually retake them surely that would make more sense than waiting until august and then saying well if you don't like the grade you can appeal uh, and then you can maybe take them again in november you know it's a waste of everybody's time isn't it it is a waste of time and i think we should be if we're extending the period until august we should be looking to do some more exams um maybe august september time rather than trying to make up grades based on past work and past experience and teachers uh expectations because that's also fluffy what does it mean you know give children a chance to prove themselves exactly and probably he would he would welcome that he was quite disappointed initially when you know the the exams got cancelled and it seems as though now actually that wasn't really necessary because i can i can't see why you couldn't have actually run the exams uh with people being socially distanced far enough away on desks to go into a, a you know a gymnasium or a hall at the school and just do the exams on different days Quite. I think social distancing in school is practically impossible. Mm. But the only area that is possible is in exam conditions, right. because we do that anyway. Right, exactly. put them all in a hall on separate desks. Yes, exactly right. So you would have just had to uh, separate them slightly. And I mean, it looks as though as well, again, now they're going to go away from this two metre rule and get it down to one metre, which will help schools tremendously, I would imagine. But it will come too late, probably, for any more kids to go back to school before the summer holidays. Yeah, I don't think we can really focus on the, the two meter rule in schools. It's not it's not realistic with children. We just have to make sure they're washing their hands. We have to make sure they're being sensible and keeping doors and windows open and things like that. Yeah, we do what we can. Yeah, children sure. aren't super spreaders, are they? You know. It's- well, I mean, it certainly seems as though the risk to t- school children is very, very low indeed. I mean, we've been hearing that. I think if you're under fourteen, uh, you're more likely to be struck by lightning than you are to actually contract COVID nineteen in a way which is going to alter um, your health in any in any sort of meaningful way, shape, or form. But what do you make of this other allegation which i've been hearing uh, from a couple of places over the course of the last week or so that some uh, state school teachers are actually getting themselves involved in private tuition um, and that's one reason why they don't particularly want to go back to school because they're getting sort of double bubble as it were look I've, I've heard nothing about this i will never get into teacher bashing i think it's a very difficult job teachers are underappreciated and it is a vocation we get into this because we care uh, about passing on our knowledge to the younger generation I think a lot of teachers may be uneasy about going back to school, and that's because you know the unions haven't helped. 
they've been harping on about it being unsafe and not really being supportive. So there's maybe a bit of unease about it, but I don't think there's a, a case of people yeah. you know, looking. And certainly, listen, I'm not about I'm not going on about teacher bashing, but I think if teachers are not going back to school because they're making money on the side, I think that would be disgraceful. It wouldn't be teacher bashing. That would be bashing people who are doing something wrong, in my view. Um, but of course, there's plenty of private tuition that goes on. There's plenty of teachers that do it in their spare time, and that's absolutely fine. But they need to go back to work if they can go back to work, because there's an awful lot of teachers who haven't been teaching. Oh, absolutely. If you can go back to work, you absolutely must at this point. I think we do need to be flexible, though. If people are living with someone who's vulnerable or if people are sheltering, that should be absolutely fine. But, you know, if you can get back to work, now's the time to do it. And now's the time to open schools properly, isn't it? Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, how do you feel about September? Because we have been told by Matt Hancock that it may not be possible to get everybody back into school in September, um, even in secondaries. I presume if they if they lose the two metre rule, that changes and they can probably get everybody back in. Look, I, I think if we if we don't get everyone back in by September, that will be a massive shame and we'll have another year written off. We can't afford that. Our children's education can't afford that. We need September to be a good start if we don't get them back in in June and July. Mm. We can't. We just can't do it. No, exactly it's right. Too much and, and for the kids who are back at school at the moment, how hard is it for them? Because obviously um, there might be some who think, well, why am I uh, being victimised? Why am I the one that has to come back to school when nobody else is? You know, is there a bit of absenteeism going on as well? No, it's complete opposite. Children who are returning to school now are so happy. They, they're smiling. They're glad to be back with their teachers and with their peers. They're learning again. Mm. They're loving it. I think um, there are a few people still at home and doing remote learning that are missing out. But, the, you know, the social aspect of it and the mental well-being is being restored. It's all good for them. Yeah, because there is, unfortunately, a very wide uh, chasm appearing between the private sector here and the public sector because talking to Julie Hartley Brewer she was saying her, her daughter's been given you know work to do consistently throughout uh, this period of time when she's been off school uh, and, and online learning has been absolutely key and it's had something like 95% take up from people wow. who send their kids uh, because they pay to send their kids to school they expect to get something in return and I guess the problem for the state system is that parents maybe don't have such expectations. Yeah, this this social divide is widening. I'm very worried about it. Um, you know, we've got a lot of kids with no access to technology to do remote learning and no internet at home, that kind of thing. I know the government have said they're going to partner with BT to make sure that free Wi-Fi hotspots are all spread around. But it is a bit late. You know, we've had three months of children missing out. That's that's a term of education missed. It's a good thing that they're doing it, but we could have done with it sooner. Well, exactly. And- Do you think there was an element of, um, of teaching um, and even Department of Education people who thought, actually, we're going to be off out of this for about a month and then we'll have Easter holidays and then we'll be back and they were sort of taken by surprise by the way that that everything's shut down oh absolutely so I, I work with a, a number of schools I consult uh, school leaders and support in that aspect I've seen so many different responses some schools were kind of just hoping and praying that we'd be back at Easter and not really doing much maybe sending a few powerpoints home but other schools have really gone for it and changed their approach and now they they can adapt so they can deliver remote learning. They can do real lessons and hybrid lessons and all this kind of stuff. And those are the ones where the pupils are really engaged and they're still learning and they're being successful. And I think a lot of other schools can learn from you know places like West London Free School and Michaela and SMSJ, all these, all these great schools that are doing great things. Great stuff. Calvin, thank you very much indeed. Calvin Robinson, State Secretary School teacher there, talking a lot of common sense. It's what we like to hear. It's what we like to see. It's what we do here uh, at Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, you might have forgotten that Brexit happened all those months ago. You might have forgotten that this time last year, uh, we were kind of ending up going towards yet another deadline, uh, which we ended up passing. We ended up going into July. 
We ended up sitting on a Saturday. You might remember that when it was all supposed to be being done and we were all supposed to know precisely what was happening next. And then, of course, it didn't happen. And then, of course, we ended up having a general election. And then suddenly there was a change. The Tory party won an 80 seat majority. Uh, We left the European Union as we were supposed to at the end of January, January 31st, you might recall. And now it's all down to the kind of final negotiations about whether or not there's a deal, what happens to the fisheries, what happens to the international trade. And let's talk now to Nick Dubois, because yesterday Boris Johnson basically said he wants to see a deal done uh, by the end of the summer, but he does not want to give in to the EU. And I don't see why he should. Nick, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike. Now, I don't know whether that was a relatively accurate uh, sort of summation of, of where we are and where, where, where we are going. But I mean, it seems to me that there's no requirement for this government to kind of uh, to worry about the EU at this point, is there? Well, I think you've summed it up. And I think the only point I would add to what you said, Mike, is it's as if the penny has dropped mm. in Brussels that the government, uh, as, as you've said already, they they stuck to a deadline on withdrawal agreement when um, when everyone said he couldn't get a deal, Boris Johnson, that is. And he's basically come out now and said, right, the formal moment has passed to extend. So that's over. That's off the cards. Everyone now knows it. And the EU have gone, yeah, I suppose you've got a point now. So let's get cracking and see if we can have a deal in place by the end of the summer. Why the end of the summer? Well, that's very simply because whatever deal is struck has to essentially go through all those parliaments in, um, in Europe, as well as uh, the, the, the UK one, because it has to be approved. And yeah. that's quite sensible. And do you know what? There seems to be talk of actually getting it done. Concessions being made, even by the EU, which, of course, many people said could never be done. Well, that would be yet another thing to add to the list of things that people said could never be done, including that Boris could not go to Brussels at the end of last year and get a different deal than the one that they'd already offered, including the one that said that he couldn't win an election, including the one that said he couldn't get out of the EU on the 31st of January. I mean, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? Well, the latest, of course, is fishing. Now, I don't know if you are a big fan of fish. I know you cook a lot, Mike, but you um, you wouldn't be surprised that this is quite a big political issue in it the is. EU. Because uh, countries like Holland and France, for example, um, have had great access to British waters and generally catch five times more than British fishermen do because of the deal that was struck when we first joined the EU all those years ago, back in 1972. Yes. Well, because bizarrely, it seems that the Europeans eat a lot more fish than we do. And I've had this conversation with some fisheries people in this country that even if we wanted to, we don't have the capacity to fish the waters of our own nation because we just don't have enough fishermen anymore. No, but the point, the point here is that basically our fishermen have always had a raw deal. And the EU, recognising they had a really good deal, said, hey... As part of any trade deal, and they said this was a red line of theirs, you will have to effectively abide by the common agricultural fishery policy, which is precisely what we voted to leave Mm. when we voted for Brexit. And sure enough, as of uh, uh, briefings going out yesterday after the talks, and in fairness, there were hints of this beforehand, Michel Barnier himself has recognised that this is not a position he can logically hold. Mm. You can't say you've got to join the uh, common um, uh, agricultural policy having voted to leave it. Uh, That it looks like that we will be able to go to an arrangement, which I think will be the compromise, where every year we agree how much fish can be caught by 
too, because mm. we are an independent sovereign nation with our own coastal fishing zones, which at one point, Mike, extends up to 200 miles from the British coastline. Yes, I'm looking at some figures in the Times today, funnily enough, total tonnage of fishing fleets. Norway uh, leads the way with 393,785. Spain comes in second, 331,778. And the UK third with 191,439, slightly more than the French uh, and the Dutch, and then Italy coming in, same with Ireland. So, I mean, I mean I'm not sure whether um, we could get a better deal than the one we have now Uh, but if we were able to um, would that increase the tonnage if you like I know that's kind of a technical question well basically that's that's effectively how much fish you can catch the point the point of the matter is is that we've only got a reduced tonnage because we were limited in what fish we could actually catch Right. right so this could so so this basically if you get behind this what this really means is if you added up all those other tonnages in the EU, they had access to our waters, which gave them effectively five times mm. the opportunity of catching more fish under the quotas and agreements for the common agricultural policy. But before we get hung up on fish, what does this really mean for the negotiations? The one, one of the strong cards we've got in negotiations, and let's assume everyone wants to get a deal, which I kind of get that. I don't think... You know, there's there's no need to sort of um, give up everything for a deal, but I think a deal is what most people would like, including the the UK government. Um, The point is, this is a strong negotiating card. And if you have the flexibility every year to set your tonnage, it means that you will have a strong card in any any ongoing agreements you will want to strike with the EU because you hold this ace in the hand. And the chances are... If you've got a strong hand in negotiations and you're trying to get a deal, you'll get a better deal, won't you, if you've got a strong hand? So I think the UK government have played a bit of a blinder here. Um, The EU recognise it, and I think it bodes well because the mood talk around all these talks is no longer about all ticking clocks and we don't know what you British want. Well, they jolly well do know what we want. They know that we're not going to move the clock. And, of course, don't forget... They sell 79, 80 billion more quids worth of product to us than we buy off them. Total trade between the two um, bilateral trade is about 700 billion. They sell more to us. Now, now I think pragmatics are kicking in, as I kind of thought they always would eventually. And we have a very good chance of getting a deal or a form of a deal uh, that might be built on over time, uh, agreed by the end of the summer. Yes, I mean, I've always believed that, that there will be an agreement, and I've always said that it's probably better to have an agreement than not have one, yeah. as long as it's done on our terms and as long as we've got what we want. Um, there's absolutely no reason to, to worry about that. But say, for example, if they did suddenly rediscover their backbone over in Brussels, if they ever did have one uh, that wasn't actually just kind of, you know, given to them to, to whip people with, um, if they suddenly decided to get dirty and play hardball you know if we were to leave without a deal what would happen to the fishing scenario uh well now i don't pretend to be a a fishing expert on this one but basically um they'd have no rights to our fishing waters so it'd be back to the old cod wars would it of the 70s yeah well they were with iceland of course Mm. if you remember in the main i do we used to have the British Navy frigates going up there. Yeah. there. There would be a slight catch. We don't actually have as many Royal Navy ships to go around and protect our, um, our, our fishing fleet, uh, even though it's a reduced size. Yeah. But the bottom line is um, we would end up in a position where, where you, you do have, I suppose, that potential for conflict. But yeah. basically, there would be no agreement to share rights and accesses to water, which, to be honest, 
Mike, it's probably not a good place to be if you're interested in conservation of fishing stock and things like that as well. But at the end of the day, like you, I think we're heading into the territory now where there's going to be a deal. Now, there will be critics lining up to say, what's what's that man Dubois talking about? He's talking rubbish. Boris Johnson has achieved nothing. Well, park all that to one side. My guess is what you will get is key agreements in place on things like fishing, uh, um, uh, uh, agriculture, the EU are desperate for, and, and this, is, this, is, this is the tough one as far as the British are concerned, they're desperate to get what they call a level playing field in, uh, in goods, because they, when, they, when you hear the words level playing field, Mike, you probably think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, mm. and, and actually, what it means is, is that they want to impose on us the highest possible regulatory controls, not necessarily in the interest of the consumer, I hasten to add, but to make sure that we don't have the flexibility be, ability to be more competitive mm. than them. So there's going to be a bit of a barney about that, but I suspect that there will be a compromise. Um, so I think you'll end up with a series of agreements that will be lumped together to look like a trade deal, but essentially will leave the UK free to do trade deals elsewhere around the world and still benefit from uh, key areas, services sector, financial sector, um, the fisheries and, uh, and more in trades and goods and services. Yes, and there's no doubt that obviously the lockdown and the, the, the events of the past three months have had a massive effect on the European Union and its power. Because let's face it, Europe is, is about as bankrupt as it's ever been in terms of individual nations. There's nobody that's really got any money. Uh, the EU doesn't, I think, know quite what to do about that because they're going to be asking for money pretty soon. And presumably, without our money, uh, they're going to be a little bit short of the old uh, pocket change. Well, they've certainly got a big budget gap as a result of us going, mm. rem- re- remember. Uh, whether you want to talk about net or gross contributions, it's one heck of a wadge of money that they're missing. Yeah. And, of course, at the moment... You've seen in the EU, there's this thing called bandwidth in government, and Mm. the EU is really having a difficult COVID crisis politically. You know, they don't want uh, borders shutting their uh, countries, shutting their borders. And even now, where they've requested countries to open their borders within the EU and let people cross, they are being ignored by some countries still who are saying, no, sorry, the European dream can wait a moment because we are protecting our own interests. They are looking at um, uh, essentially uh, a dispute between the northern states and the southern states over who picks up the bill to help subsidise many of the problems that countries have been facing in the EU, just as we have here with COVID. And, of course, you've got nations like Holland, um, uh, who are kind of financially, shall we say, conservative, are saying, hang on, um, we're not going to pick up the whole tab for this, you know. You can't impose those burdens on us. What you are proposing is that the rich countries bail out the... Um, the, the poorer countries, mm. the, the Mediterranean states. So they've got all sorts of issues going on there that will test the European Union. Um, and so I think they are, they, as far as the deal goes, they're probably thinking, crikey, if we can get a deal in the summer, that's, that, that's one less problem to worry about. Yes, I think so. And just generally speaking on the government, I mean, I've been saying uh, for the last couple of weeks, it's been a little bit rudderless, it seems to me, uh, coming from Downing Street. It seems as though this week they're getting a bit more of a grip of things. It's, you know, they passed this law making mass gatherings and protests illegal by and large, which I think is a good thing. Uh, they've also uh, decided to, uh, to tell people if you desecrate any kind of memorials, you're going to go to prison for 10 years. They've also 
now said that they're going to include white working class boys uh, as part of their study uh, into uh, racial equality. You know, it seems as though they're kind of rediscovering their roots, if you like. Well, I, I certainly think they finally picked up on the huge frustration a lot of uh, uh, people would have felt mm. who are respecting things like the lockdown, who are desperate to try and join the government in the battle to contain this COVID and would have been sick to death and actually, frankly, a bit confused by the mixed messages that were coming out that allowed, effectively, big demonstrations to go ahead. OK, it's, on the one hand, the government was saying you really shouldn't be doing this, and on, on the other hand, you have the prospect and sight of, uh, 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 of basically tolerating mm. marches. Yeah. Now, I think people were like, hang on, you know, I'm following the rules here. Why is it one rule for some, one rule for others? That doesn't mean, by the way, that, you know, uh, I d uh, don't have any sympathy or support even for, for Black Lives Matter, of course I do. But we're talking about in the middle of the COVID crisis, mixed messages coming from government. I think that was the problem. They clearly seem to be getting back on top of things uh, in that respect. And that's a good thing because, you, you know, the government's got an 80-seat majority, Mike. It's in a good position to do things. And I think what you've described as a little wobble, yeah, quite possibly. But they are dealing with, frankly, the biggest unknown we've had on record for years. Uh, and I think overall, this government is um, doing a good job trying uh, to contain this huge unknown and make as many of us as safe as possible, notwithstanding the fact, of course, there've been a high number of deaths. There have been mistakes along the way. But look around the world. I think you'll find there have been a lot of mistakes made elsewhere as well. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Nick, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Nick Dubois, uh, former Tory MP, of course, former Special Advisor Dominic Raab, author of a great book. If you haven't got it, go and get it. Confessions of a Recovering MP. Now they've opened the shops, you've got no excuse whatsoever. Uh, although you probably can get it online as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's go straight now to uh, Mr Charles Ray, who's going to keep us up to date on uh, the, the Harry and Meghan situation. The latest news from uh, that part of the world is that in British Columbia, uh, Canadian taxpayers got landed with quite a big security bill uh, for their stay on Vancouver Island. Charles, a very good morning or very good afternoon to you, I should say. Uh, good afternoon, Michael. Yes. Yes. So um, it's hard for these guys to stay out of the limelight. We heard that uh, Harry sent a message, I think, to uh, the Duke of Edinburgh for his 99th birthday, which was very nice of him. Um, the other big news, of course, Jessica Mulroney, um, Meghan's good friend, seems to have fallen out with her uh, for no through through no fault of Meghan's, apparently. Um, now this security bill has popped up. Yes. Now this is a, a security bill for. 56,000 Canadian dollars, right. which my quick calculations made when I used to do expenses is about 35,000. <laughs> yeah, you probably you probably put one in for that, didn't you, for one of those trips <laughs> in the Caribbean? <laughs> I probably did. I probably did. So it's about 35 to 38,000 pounds. And to be perfectly honest, this is a drop in the ocean to what it's cost British taxpayers. This mm. is the money that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation have managed to find out was the cost to their country. And it's just for the two months that they were there, because as we all know, they hopped off pretty smartish back uh, down to Los Angeles, where they are now living in a lavish um, uh, uh, mansion owned by somebody called Tyler Perry, whatever his name is. Oh, this is um, the guy who's a friend of Oprah Winfrey's, right? 
Correct, that is right. But he's 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 also mega mega rich. I mean, how he's actually made his money, I'm not terribly sure. And I'm not suggesting that he's that in the various means to. No, I think he's in some some kind of television uh, scenario, isn't he? Yeah, he's a shrewd cookie, apparently. Anyway, the, the Canadians are not happy that they've had to fork out this amount of money. And as I say, compared to what we have had to pay while they were there, because we had to send out metropolitan police team uh, squad, uh, uh, between 12 and 16 people. Um, this money um, is the money that it costs uh, for uh, travel, overtime and meals for the Mounties. Mm. doesn't include their salaries, but that's fair enough because they would have been paid anyway because they would have been on other duties. Um, what it doesn't cover is anything else after that. Uh, it's just for that those two months. So, yeah, I mean, they are, they, they are certainly... Uh, a a, a business on their own and they're costing an awful lot of money mm. for an awful lot of people. Well, exactly right. And as far as we understand it, the, 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 the British end of their uh, of their security is now being paid by Prince Charles, isn't it? He is paying £2 million towards their security in the States. Now, what we don't know, is because obviously the Metropolitan Police won't tell us, is how much of that is actually being paid to um, for the Metropolitan Police. We, what we do know is that they are paying a private security company, one of these very celebrity security companies, mm. around about seven and a half grand a day. They have got a who's who client list. Uh, they're paying £7,500 a day for, for private security. So there's a, there could be a combination of both, but not so much on the Scotland Yard side. No, quite. And seemingly they've been shocked and uh, stunned to discover that the paparazzi apparently exist in Hollywood, California, uh, where most what? of the big stars of the movie business actually live. Um, and they've been the victims of some uh, drone attacks, shall we say. Yeah, they have. I mean, if you remember that, that documentary that was made by... Uh, ITN's uh, Tom Bradbury, where, yes. you know, she looked at the camera and said, you know, those nasty British newspapers, we don't have anything like that in the States. And you think, steady on, sweetheart. You've got paparazzi, they're using drones, they're, they're capturing every movement uh, that you can imagine of you. And there is, it's the Wild West out there. It's yeah. not like where we, we, have, we have deals and we, we are sort of nice, gentle you know, beasts and everything else. And they're, they're having a, a torrid time. And you have to say, why did you go to Los Angeles right. in the first place, which is paparazzi capital? Well, exactly it's right. Bizarre. Because any um, sort of stars who don't wish to be part of all of that circus, which means that every time you go out for dinner, there's somebody taking pictures of you. Every time you go out for a walk, somebody's taking pictures of you. You know, it's America's a very big country. There's any number of places you could go and live. You know, Jeff Bridges and his father and the whole Bridges family used to have a big ranch in Wyoming where nobody yeah. ever went because it was out of the way. Nobody bothered going there because if you were sat on the roadside, it was about two miles to the, to the house in the middle of the, uh, you know, in the middle of the farm. And so... And and, and he didn't. And, nobody ever bothered him. And didn't you still have to ride a horse to get to it? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But you couldn't make him drink, unfortunately. You know, because that's the way it goes. But you know, I mean, it, it seems remarkable that. Uh, and this Mulroney thing's interesting, isn't it? Because it would appear it that Meghan has now ghosted her into the bargain because of a sort of a row she got into uh, about Black Lives Matter. She's not. Yes, um, Jessica Mulroney has uh, had a pop at an, uh, an African lady who's a, a very big blogger in Canada, yeah. and who who had suggested that Jessica Mulroney use her 
not uh, unsubstantial um, method of communicating with people on social media and asked her to sort of make a comment about Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Mulroney responded, in effect, with a snooty email and then ended up sending a private message and threatening almost that she was going to sue her for libel and misspelled the word yes. libel. Yes, that's not a great start, that really, is it? You're not no, frightened not of somebody who can't even spell it. <laughs> and and we now have a situation where we're not terribly sure. And, and also what Mulroney did was that she was the one who made reference to her best pal, Meghan Markle. You know, I'm best friends with, you know, a black American, very famous black American and all that sort of stuff. And I'm not sure that's gone down terribly well in, in Meghan Markle's uh, little, little world. Although Meghan herself hasn't made any comment whatsoever, either condemning Mulroney or supporting her, which is equally interesting. So we are left with a situation where you're absolutely right, where she could well be being ghosted at the moment. Yes, exactly right. Well, the other uh, amazing story for me, um, partly because I've been watching, I don't know whether you've watched it yet, the Epstein uh-huh. documentary uh-huh. on yeah. uh, on Netflix, which is quite extraordinary. Um, I mean, pretty pretty un, uh, uncomfortable watching for one thing, but certainly, I mean, it, there can be no doubt in anyone's mind that if you knew Jeffrey Epstein and you spent any time in his company, you would have absolutely no doubt uh, what was going on. Well, I was riveted to that programme, um, you know, Filthy, filthy Rich, um, and it is a very, very hard watch. And I have to say that every time I hear and see uh, uh, Virginia uh, Roberts, I, I, I tend to believe her more and more. And when you look at the, the programme in, in the whole, the, the, the number of women who were groomed by Epstein, it is absolutely disgraceful and incredible. And you're absolutely right. Anybody who had any connection with Epstein in the same way as Prince Andrew had could not have failed to notice what was going on. Even even if there are still some people left in this world, and he's denying any involvement with any of the young girls at all, but even if you were to believe all that, it's still highly suspicious. And it is dreadful. And I have to say that one of the stories that's angered me no end in, in the last couple of days is this so-called friend of Prince Andrew who uh, is, is saying that Prince Andrew uh, is, uh, uh, says he is wrong, that he didn't show remorse in the programme with Emily Maitlis where he made that interview. Now, this friend, could this be the same friend who, at the time of the picture was coming out, was making suggestions that the picture was fake, that it was, and- it was not Andrew's arm, it was not Andrew's head, and... Um, it's not Andrew saying he's full of remorse. As far as we are aware, he has not said anything at all publicly that says anything that he would feel sorry for any of these victims. No. No, he had to have it sort of dragged out of him in some way, yes. which was not quite the full ticket in any event. But but she no. uh, certainly um, has called him a rather uh, a bad name. She's basically said she's referred to him as a slithering plague, for heaven's sake. She, she has, and she's also called him a toad, which is quite, you know, fairy tale like you know, it's a change from kissing a toad, I suppose. Well, yeah, I suppose so. But, uh, but yes, I mean, she's, uh, she's quite adamant. And, and I, as we've discussed before, Mike, this guy is going to have to sit down with the Department of Justice officials or the FBI in a statement. He claims he's now trying to help them and has made three offers of help. No, what he's done, he's made three offers to deliver a written statement. That's not what we want. We want him sitting down in a room with the FBI and his lawyer answering proper questions. And what he knew, what went on in that house, and obviously the big question, 
you know, which, which is the sort of the Bill Clinton question: Did you have sex with this woman? Yes, indeed. And he says uh, when he's asked a question like that by Emily Maitlis, uh, that he doesn't remember her, doesn't he? <laughs> which is not quite well, the same thing. It's not the same thing, and it's astounding that he cannot remember this woman. And given given that um, Ghislaine Maxwell, who is the sort of you know the puppeteer in all this, the daughter of the former newspaper magnate Robert Maxwell, well, given that she he his, his involvement with her wasn't just a passing you know fancy, he was heavily involved with that woman. They were very very close friends. Yes, and there is no they've stopped saying that that picture is false. That he's got his arm around Victoria uh, Virginia Roberts. So he clearly has met her, and he may well say, I don't remember. Well, you know, I think that's um, uh, stretching the imagination a little bit. Well, it's not going to hold water forever, is it? I suppose that's the point. No, it's not. Yeah. No. And as far as the Queen is concerned, um, obviously she has gone into kind of almost uh, semi-recluse status because of the the lockdown. And uh, is there? do you think she'll come out of that? I mean, as the economy lifts a little bit, as things kind of returns to normal. We had the Trooping of the Colour the other day, uh, obviously without her uh, participation. Do you think she will come back into the public eye? I, I do, and if you remember, well, this week is at Royal Ascot week, and it's going to be the first time in her reign mm. she's not attended Royal Ascot. I mean, it's only going to be jockeys and various other people all wearing masks. I, I look forward to watching that on the television this <laughs> afternoon. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I think the Queen will come back again. I'm not sure exactly when. I, I, I would just love her to come back just for one key investiture, and that is to confirm the knighthood on Colonel Sir Tom Moore, uh, because that would be a great thing. I mean, she's a spring chicken compared to Colonel Tom, uh, and it would be great if she could do that. But you've got to remember that the Queen's diary is fixed two years in advance, and I'm sure that when the day comes that she's able to come back and fulfil royal duties, uh, she will do so, and will carry on as normal. We've had her doing a Zoom conference so far already, so you know, she's still in there, and she's still trying to help as much as she can. Yeah, remarkable woman. Charles, as ever, yeah. thank you very much indeed. From the Royal Editor of the Sun, Charles Ray there talking to us about the trials and tribulations of being uh, Meghan and Harry, where it's still not quite working out for them in California. Uh, the Queen will return, he says, to public duties. And Prince Andrew, you know, this story is not going away anytime soon. Uh, and as uh, Charles says, he's going to have to front up uh, with the uh, US attorneys and US prosecutors you know simply offering to send them a statement ain't going to wash I'm afraid Uh, I'm not even going to say your royal highness because I don't think we really uh, think we should be calling him that anymore should we this is Talk Radio the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio Right now, though, it is just after 12.30 and it is time for our homeschooling section. Uh, and we're going to talk now to Sally Etchells, Government Relations Advisor at the National Deaf Children's Society, because I'm going to be learning, believe it or not, if I can, uh, and I'm going to try my hardest to learn uh, how to do a bit of sign language. Sally, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Hello there. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Now, I had a friend who learned sign language because it was something that, uh, that I hadn't thought of in the past, but she basically wanted to go into um, working in the court system and helping people who were, um, you know, uh, not able to hear what was being said so that she could provide them with, with a signing kind of um, uh, alternative, I suppose. And we see more and more, don't we? I'm watching, even as we speak, Nicola Sturgeon's briefing up in Scotland today, um, and uh, behind her is somebody signing what she's saying. So it's become something that we're much more aware of, I suppose, than, than, than we would have been. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as you've said, sort of um, the visibility of British Sign Language has increased with um, the, the daily briefings in Scotland. Um, 
unfortunately the daily briefings in england they don't have um sort of a live british sign language interpreter right. um in in the room which is something that um a lot of deaf people and organizations have been challenging um what they do have is they have um british sign language interpretation um on sort of bbc news channel yeah um, yeah. But they don't have sort of the live physical interpreter there, which which some people have been asking for. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but you're right. It, it has increased the visibility of British Sign Language, which which is a good thing. Um, but we're we're always campaigning for more awareness of it um, and, you know, and more publicity of British Sign Language, because what um, a lot of people don't really realise is that it is. A British language mm. um, so like English and Welsh um, it is actually a recognized language um, that's used by thousands of people um, in the UK and therefore is it different when you go to say a different country where they speak a different language is the sign language there's no universal sign language then no there's no universal sign language so it's just like any other spoken language um you know there's irish sign language american sign language um even in the uk if you're um say you're in london or you're in scotland the sign language will be slightly different mm. so uh, for example numbers you'd um you'd sign those slightly differently so it's just like um regional dialects and accents mm. um, because the language develops in um, a similar way um, within communities you know the language develops and spreads and um, new signs are coming up all the time so for example um, when um, like a new word is sort of added to our vocabulary so like brexit or coronavirus um, new signs are actually sort of created and developed by the deaf community and and how does that evolve as such? Is it is it something that uh, there's a sort of committee of people that say this will be the sign for coronavirus, or or how does it work? I I don't think there is. I think it just I think it just sort of spreads mm. through groups of people and through communities. Um, obviously, with social media as well now, um, you have sort of like bloggers and vloggers out there who are who are sort of um, signing and doing doing information and resources in sign language. So I think it spreads um, through sort of communications and social media as well. Mm, OK. And I see that when people are signing, uh, like I'm watching, as I say, Nicola Sturgeon and the, and, and the woman behind her, they're also moving their mouth at the same time. So is there an element of, of signing which also involves speaking? <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, so... The majority of sign language is obviously using the hands and using gestures, mm. um, but a lot of it is about facial expressions. Um, and so what we've been finding is uh, with face masks, it's it's a really big issue mm. for deaf people because as soon as you've got that mask on, that barrier, um, you're not um, able, if you're, if you're deaf, you're not able to pick up on the facial expressions as much. Yes. Um, and things like, you can't see if someone's smiling or if they're sad. Um, so yeah, and and in terms of the lip patterns, yes. Yeah, so um, you might not necessarily make a sound with your mouth, but you'd be using some lip pattern. Yeah. So for example, if I'm waving hello, that that's the sign for hello. But I might mouth hello as well mm. with my mouth because um, a lot of deaf people, I mean virtually all deaf people, use some lip reading mm. um, as well. So that helps with the communication. 
Yes, it's interesting you mentioned uh, face masks because I got a tweet earlier from Tracy who said that she was grateful we're doing this because she says the same. Everyone wearing face masks is a nightmare for deaf people who lip read. My husband is struggling. And so, I mean, I noticed that this morning, funnily enough, because we wear masks now as we walk through the lobby of this building. And I smiled at the guy behind the desk and realised he couldn't see me smiling. It's kind of pointless <laughs> yeah. activity, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know, totally. And um, it it's an issue for everyone because because actually a mask kind of um, muffles the sound. So, um, you know, I don't I don't have any hearing issues, but when I've been out and about um, and someone's spoken to me wearing a mask, I can't I can't really hear, mm. you know, even myself. So for deaf people, it's it's a really significant barrier. Um, and we're sort of calling on people um, in shops and on public transport, so staff, um, but also the general public to kind of be as deaf aware as they can be. Yeah. So you might want to write a message down um, or sort of uh, type out a text on your phone and show that to, you know, if you think that someone might be deaf or not understanding you, there's some other sort of tips that you can you can adopt when you're wearing a mask. Yes. And as far as uh, the teaching of sign language goes, um, it's not really taught in schools universally, but do you think it should be? Yeah. So what, what we think is that it should be an option. Um, so it should be there as something that pe- people can do if they want to and schools can teach it if they want to. Um, so at the moment, it's taught in some sort of deaf schools mm. um, or schools with a lot of deaf children in. But it's it's certainly not not universally taught. It's not on the curriculum. Um, so so we have been campaigning particularly for a GCSE um in British Sign Language, yeah. because yeah. what that would mean is that people could take it if they want to. So, um, you know, a little bit like there's GCSEs in, say, um, Mandarin or in Hebrew or, you know, many other languages, but there's not a GCSE in British Sign Language. So if we started with with the GCSE, people could take that and then they'd have a qualification in it. Um, but but yeah, we really think that just if any everyone could learn some basic signs, um, that would that would go a long way um because um you know just if you meet a deaf person and you just know a few signs it yeah. can yeah. it can just really make the world of difference to them well well now's your chance sally to teach me some basics uh, of sign language um i would like I, I suppose when you show me something i'll go oh yeah I, i've seen that before so i should really know that but it's not something most of us think about on a, on a daily basis really i know i know most people just don't think about I think um, you know if you if you don't know a deaf person or you haven't met a deaf person, it doesn't really cross your mind. Um, so so it's it's good to raise awareness mm. of it. And just if you know sort of you know thank you and um, things like that, it can it can really make a big difference. So is it easy to teach me how to say thank you in sign? It is. It is. Um, I don't know if the listeners, uh, hopefully, hopefully um, I can explain what I'm doing as well. So the listeners. Can, yeah, there's you know, lo- don't yeah. worry. There's, there's loads of people watching you on YouTube as well. So just just remember you're on TV as well as on radio. <laughs> OK, so, so do you want to learn thank you? Yeah, go on, teach me thank you. And then I can say thank you to you before you go. OK, so if you just put your hand sort of towards your chin, um, so your fingertips are on your chin. Yeah and your hands flat and right. then you just raise it down oh like like that okay like that and right. like you like you were saying earlier you might also also mouth like thank you so 
So you might sort of have a lip pattern, thank you. And you just, that's it, perfect. Thank you. There you go. Well, that's that's great. So so now I can say thank you in sign. That's brilliant. Yeah. And also a great thing for people to learn um, is finger spelling. So it's like the alphabet mm. um, on your fingers. Um, so if you if you meet anyone, you can uh, finger spell your name. Okay. Um, so that's that's useful. And so what A is your thumb? Is it A is your thumb? Yeah. So you use your um, one finger and then you point it towards your thumb. Right. So the va- the vowels are on your hand. So A E I O U. Okay. Yeah. A E I O U. Okay. So where about the consonants? So, uh, do you want M? Uh, M, yeah, why not? I'll do Mike, if you can. Yeah, so um, you've got one one flat hand yeah. where you're putting the letter, and then you've got your three middle fingers on the other hand, okay. and you put that flat on the hand, so that's M. Okay. See, I can't do with, with my pinky what you're doing. It doesn't bend like that. <laughs> I can sort of make it look a little bit... Okay, so there's M, right? That's M. Yeah. Well, and then and so... I... I is, is here, isn't it? Isn't that I? I is, yeah, because um, the vowels are on, yeah. on this hand. So I've done so that. So I is I there. Is the middle. Okay. And then K is quite difficult. Mm. It's um, one one finger up and one finger like this. And you're... <laughs> Sorry if this doesn't make sense to anyone listening. No, that's okay. but... <laughs> so that's, that's, yeah, okay. K. Yeah. And then E, the that's it. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. So you've got one Just finger against the other finger, like a K. <laughs> and then E is. And then uh, you've got. Is is there, isn't it? So E is there. It's back to that's right. it. Yeah. Okay. So that's Mike. And then if you get really good, you do it really, really fast. Yeah. So you'd join it all together and yeah. you'd be like this. I'm, I'm notoriously um, ham-fisted, so it would probably end up looking like a right old mess. There we go. <laughs> What's your name, Moke? You know, I'd probably get it wrong. But listen, that's great. That's really helpful, and uh, I'm sure people at home can learn it. Is there a place you can go and sort of learn? you know what the basics are yeah so if if everyone's got um access to the internet the the best thing to do is to just sort of google it or youtube it so there's so many videos out there on youtube um you might want to search for uh, british sign language level one or basic british sign language um we've also got um family sign language courses um available on the national deaf children society website and social media and that's for families with deaf children so um learning simple vocabulary like animals and colors um so that's available for for families at the moment as well okay. um, because of lockdown it's it's online which, which is great Brilliant. Well, Sally, listen, thank you so much. Uh, it's been really helpful, very educational. I'm hoping that the children listening will have, will have, will have uh, learned a lot. And I'm going to say um, thank you to you. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.